Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Peas on Earth. Wouldn't that be nice? On this week's show, we're taking a big look at the little green pea, where there's a world of things to be discovered. First, we'll meet Ben Branson, the inspiration for this entire episode. British-born Ben Branson can boast of three generations of agrarian ancestry in northern England. What did his family grow? Green peas! With the help of a rare distillation manual dating back to 1651, Ben became the first person to discover how to distill a non-alcoholic spirit, something he dubbed seedlip after the baskets his ancestors used when they sowed their seeds. Bartenders across the world are clamoring for his delicious invention, as it gives them a perfect dry base for mixing up a sophisticated cocktail for those who aren't drinking alcohol, for whatever reason. Ben introduced us to the Lamborn family, whose patriarch, Dr. Calvin Lamborn, invented the sugar snap pea. Sadly, Dr. Lamborn died in the summer of 2017, but his son Rod is carrying on his legacy. And we'll also examine the work of Clarence Birdseye, the man who's responsible for the vine-fresh frozen peas so regularly seen on our dinner tables. So, peas don't go anywhere. Let's give peas a chance on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hello, my name is Ben Branson, uh, the founder of Seedlip, world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirits. When Ben Branson walked into the room, it seemed as if perhaps he was visiting from Middle Earth. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Actually, he just traveled to New Orleans from Great Britain with a magical new elixir he'd created from green peas, having learned the alchemy of distillation from an ancient leather-bound volume dating back to 1651. With green flashing eyes accented by his green garb, Ben began to tell me the story of how a copper still in his home kitchen laid the groundwork for seed lip the world's first non-alcoholic distilled spirit. By the way, the green peas come from his family's 300-year-old ancestral farm in northern England. I'm obsessed with peas for lots of different reasons. I love nature, and my family have been farming for 320 years in England. Very proud of that, which meant I, I grew up you know, with a, a great love and appreciation of the countryside and growing and farming really instilled in me. 
I got kind of sick of just growing oregano and basil and just sort of normal herbs, I guess. And I ended up kind of finding myself looking at a copy of a book called The Art of Distillation. And it was a book that was a kind of compendium of techniques and recipes and remedies of the 17th century. In it were mentioned alcohol remedies and non-alcohol remedies, all using distillation as a form of extraction, as a way of making them. I don't drink, so I thought it was kind of interesting to muck around at home and a bit of arts and crafts. I learned how to do taxidermy about seven years ago. I like to paint and draw at home. So just kind of, I ordered a little pot still from the internet. And then I, I was in a restaurant about three months later with my girlfriend and, and there were three cocktails mentioned at the top and then a beautiful selection of food. And they were all alcohol cocktails. And so I was like, wow, the food menu looks amazing. The cocktails sound amazing, but I'm not drinking. Um, and I asked the waitress, have you got anything good that's non-alcoholic? And she almost looked sad, you know? She almost kind of, her face slightly dropped. Mm. And she just said an answer that I found a common answer, which is, oh, you know, we have the usual Coke, water. And it was then that I was kind of like, wow, this the state of affairs of, of what's on offer, if you're not drinking for whatever reason, is really poor. Usually fruity, usually sweet, no theater, no ritual, no craft, no real consideration of building actually a great, complex, sophisticated drink, regardless of whether it's got alcohol in. I was like, I've got to do something about this. Um, so yeah, fast kind of two years it took me to create a whole new process, a whole way of, you know, working with, I worked with historians and talked to botanists, talked to distillers to try and bring this category and, and a kind of new way of thinking about non-alcoholic drinks to life. Let's talk about this magical book you've got with you. So this is a magical book. It's a tiny little, like, just bigger than a postcard size book. It comes everywhere with me. It's the book. It's The Art of Distillation. This copy that we have here was published in 1664. I wouldn't even say it's written in <laughs> English. It's written in Old English. There's yes. some crazy language in there. Uh, the original copy, uh, which is 1651, King George III owned. There's illustrations. Um, there's graffiti from, you know, 1727, signing people signing their names in the book. Um, it smells, as you would hope it would smell, musky and old. Magical. Um, it's become this really actually tangible thing that people can hold in their hands as long as they put white gloves on. Yes. Um, the A is 353 years old, and B is a really important part, I think, of, of drinks history. What were your first distillates? What did you make? What did you start making? I was trying, you know, I was putting all kinds of weird and wonderful things in the still from Sancho peppercorns and Szechuan peppers to chilies to mint to rosemary, thyme. I was giving anything a go, to be honest. And then working around the point where I actually was like, right, I, I've got two products that I want to create. I started to look at ingredients that are grown on my farm and chose to base Seedlip Garden all around peas because we grow a lot of peas on our farm. Um, and so we use my peas in this product. And then the other ingredient I wanted to build a flavor profile around was all spice berries. 
the reason why seedlip is called seedlip is that a seedlip is the name of a seed sower's basket that was used to sow seed by hand back in the 17th century. So there are no machines. We as a family would hand sow our seed and we would use this basket called a seedlip, which I thought was fitting in that we take ingredients that are grown in the ground from seed literally to lip. What was it like when you first held that bottle in your hand? I hand-bottled a thousand bottles and I delivered them myself. I labeled them myself. Um, you sold them yourself, I sold obviously. them myself. And I thought they would last five months. Those thousand bottles sold out in three weeks. And then I, I put my cell number on the website. I put my email address on there. You know, I, I kind of, I just wanted to sort of, okay, I don't know how this is going to go. And so for those thousand bottles sell out in three weeks, and then the next thousand sell out in three days, and the third thousand sell out in 30 minutes, um, <laughs> we really want to celebrate the peas. We think that, A, they make a fantastic garnish, they look great, um, and they reference, you know, the dominant ingredient that we so love and that I farm. And whether that's a handful of frozen peas in there, whether that's a fresh sugar snap pea, fresh pods, peas through cocktail skewers, you name it. Well, you, you're dressed in green. You look like you sprang right from the <laughs> pea patch, my dear. <laughs> well, we just, as a team, we handpick all our peas. They go from field to freezer in 90 minutes. And then we can draw them down and distill them as we need to. How long do you suppose you can grow enough peas to sustain your production? So we're farming peas on a big scale. So we farm 600 acres of peas. That's a lot. It's a lot of peas. That's a big farm in Great Britain, isn't it? Is. It is. Yeah, I mean, Great Britain is quite small. And to give point of context, they think that in England, the average person eats 9,000 peas a year. So we love our peas. What are the sort of things people are doing with your product? A seed lip and tonic, we think, is a great alternative to a gin and tonic or a vodka and soda or a whiskey and coke. And then we serve our seed lip garden with peas and we serve seed lip spice with a nice grapefruit twist. So that's like really simple. People can make at home. They can ask for in a bar. I mean, the, the reaction that we've had uh, from some of the best chefs and best bartenders in the world has been pretty surreal, to be honest. On the restaurant side, we're now served in over 80 Michelin-star restaurants around the world. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm honored oh. to have met you here in the infancy of Seedlip. <laughs> yeah, we are babies. And I hope you'll stay in touch and keep us posted. Absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Ben Branson, founder of Seedlip. Coming up next, we'll learn about the legacy of Dr. Calvin Lamborn, father of the sugar snap pea. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, B 
Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Whether they're cooked in a stir-fry or eaten raw as a snack, it's estimated that more than 150 million sugar snap peas are consumed around the world each year. You may be surprised to learn that this pervasive variety of pea is a relatively new vegetable, created by accident less than 40 years ago by Dr. Calvin Lamborn. Known as the father of the sugar snap pea, Dr. Lamborn spent his life perfecting this and other pea varieties, revolutionizing the industry in the process. Sadly, Dr. Lamborn died in the summer of 2017, but we had the opportunity to talk with his son, Rod Lamborn, who's working hard to maintain his father's pea legacy. I first asked Rod to explain how and why peas became Dr. Lamborn's whole life. Well, my father started back in 1969. He was given a direction to fix the distortion on the snow pea and what they came up with with the snap pea by crossing a rogue shell pea with a snow pea. And it wasn't without his problems either. There was, uh, you know, some internal struggle with this new class of pea. There were people in the company that didn't think there was any value with that. They tried to shut the program down multiple times. People had a hard time understanding that you could eat the pod. And I have a really distinct memory of being about seven years old in Twin Falls, Idaho, and telling my next-door neighbors that I was eating peas so that you could eat the whole pod, and them telling me, like, no, you really can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And being surprised, because, you know, I mean, as a kid, you don't tell an adult, like, I think you're wrong, Uh, I can't do that. But I remember my father saying that he had something there that was really special, and he persisted. When people tried to shut him down, I think he just doubled his efforts it took at least two generations to notice that the snap pea came out of this. And then an additional few years for there to become any kind of recognition. It wasn't until 1979 that the snap pea won an All-American Selection Gold Award for introducing a new vegetable. <laughs> That's something that doesn't happen every day. No, the gold award that, was, that he won is very rare. It's an extremely prestigious honor. And it took that for the snap pea to really start getting traction. He was really a visionary in so many ways. And after he has the original snap pea, he goes on to figure out how to make them grow in all sorts of astonishing colors and such. Tell us about where he went from the original green snap pea. He was working for a company 
when he developed the original Sugar Snap Pea, and they retired him early. So he was about 63 years old, and they said, oh, guess what? We're going to let you go. And he didn't like that. <laughs> he said, I'm not done. I want to keep going. And when he retired, he actually worked harder than he ever had in his whole entire life because he no longer had his laboratory, his research assistants, his lab techs. He had him, his notepad in his mind. And he was able to continue with what it was that he was doing, charting out plans of what to do for the future and do it without a corporate entity telling him you can't do that. He was able to do things that increased pod productivity, that made it so the plants were more vigorous, produced more pods, could handle some of the pressures of insects and environment, and still excel. So his passion for peas actually accelerated. And his ability to do crosses and bring to market shortened. They say it usually takes 10 years from first cross to introduction to market. Four years, six years became our model. So we have this germplasm that's just fantastic. And we have all these different traits that we've been able to figure out the plants that have, they express the best part of these traits. And when you start taking all these different traits from peas that have never been crossed before, then you start getting things that you didn't expect. Like the maroon snap pea, the maroon snow pea. Like that's a color that didn't exist earlier, but it's a color that works within the boundaries of the genetics of the snap pea and snow pea. And every color has a different flavor. You know, when I'm talking to chefs in the farmer's market, if they like the purple, then I understand that they really get what's going on with food. They know how to take that purple and make it work for them. Do you have any stories about relationships between your dad and chefs that grew up over time? You know, my father had somewhat of a relationship with the late James Beard and had met and spoken with them and corresponded with them. But these current things that have been happening has been more my doing, where I've been meeting with chefs and introducing new varieties to them. And, um, you know, I learned pretty quickly in New York that I could, and I had done this. I, was, I, I, I went into Alain Decasse and I said, my father developed the sugar snap pea. I'd love to meet the chef. A couple of weeks later, I'm in meeting the chef, which is kind of a strange thing to do. It's kind of like a little kid, you know, coming in, you know, it's like I fell off the potato truck. <laughs> and here I am in New York, like knocking on your door and saying like, yeah, my daddy did this. Can I come and talk to you? And I didn't know how to approach this, this restaurant, this most special restaurant that I'd ever been in before this time was Sizzler. And <laughs> so I'm going in with a suit and tie. I bring in the peas. I walk back into the kitchen. The whole kitchen stops with food prep, and everybody gathers around. And I'm able to present the peas, the new stuff that we have. And the chef took a bite, and he said, how much do you got, and how soon can I get it? Oh, what a great reward. Your dad must have been so proud of you. What did he have to say about these uh, bold marketing efforts for someone who perhaps had a sizzler palate previously? <laughs> Well, he wanted all the grandkids to go out and start doing this all around the nation. So <laughs> I was like, no, slow down. It works. But it's an awkward situation to be in. Um, and I got better at time uh, talking to chefs and understanding what to do. I have a great relationship with Rick Bishop, 
who is a very esteemed culinary grower that supplies the best chefs in New York City. And this really opened up many of the other restaurants, many of the other chefs. So my father developed a leafy green that took an academic curiosity and he turned it into something commercial. And Rick grew it out. The very first day he brought it to the farmer's market, Thomas Keller pounced on it. When he saw these peas, he took them back to his kitchen. And his cuisine, uh, David Breeden, decided to take them and to trim off the tiny little leaflets to garnish a soup bowl. And so you'd get these little tiny little specks of green and you would eat them and had a nice flavor of fresh peas. But it's a leaf that's so small. How did that get that flavor in there? That was the first presentation of the Lamborn Snap Greens. And interestingly enough, my father was so happy about that story. We were invited out to French Laundry to meet their team, the front of house and back of house. And we were at a barbecue. And my dad was telling that story to David Breeden. And I said, Dad, stop. Like This is the guy that actually came up with that technique. Because he was trying to tell him, like, oh, and then per se did this, and they put it together like this, and I said, Dad, stop. This is the guy that actually came up with that idea. And he stopped mid-sense, and he said, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a remarkable moment to be able to have that full circle, because here we are, you know, with French Laundry. Yeah. Mind you, the fanciest restaurant that I'd ever been in when I was growing up is Sizzler, <laughs> and we're at the top, the best that you could possibly be. And here's my dad and the chef sitting down, having a great conversation, talking about life, the history of the peas, and kind of the evolution of the peas. What an inspiration. Even though he got forcibly retired in his early 60s, he really didn't stop. Well, I'll start with this. My last conversation with my father was about peas, and it was a very peaceful conversation because I understood that that was my last conversation with him. And um, I was really happy to tell him that we've got it covered. We've got things taken care of here. And um, we just had a moment of silence. But um, so I'm, I'm honored to say that that was, it was so important to him that that's, that was, that was our world. I've been with my dad for the last 15 years at some degree. And now it's, the the burden rests on me. And let's just say that there are sleepless nights where I try to figure out, like, well, what am I going to do and how I'm going to do it? You know, and I've told I've told people this before. It's like there's a lot of me running around like my hair's on fire. Like there's so much stuff that I have to figure out. And the the sad points for me are when I want to call my dad and tell him, oh, guess what I figured out? Oh, guess what happened? Guess what we were able to do here? And, you know, I can't, like, those are the more somber moments where it's like you'd be so proud if you knew that we were able to, like, do this or manage that. Because he was very appreciative of the work that people did for him. Rod Lamborn, son of the father of the sugar snap pea, Dr. Calvin Lamborn. Jeff Quint, and I'm the owner and founder of Cedar Ridge Distillery. 
Farmer Jeff Quint's family tree can be traced back nine generations to the Mosul River Valley in Germany, where they were involved in the alcohol trade. Over time, Jeff's retirement plan was to follow in their footsteps by opening the first distillery in Iowa since Prohibition, where he now uses the corn he grows on his 800-acre farm to produce award-winning bourbons. We sat down with Jeff to learn how an Iowa farm boy became recognized by the American Distilling Institute as Craft Distiller of the Year. In 1881, my great-grandfather moved here from Vintrich, Germany. And so my last name is Quint. We trace the Quint name back um, nine generations as far as we've gotten so far. Uh, And nine generations ago, the Quint family was still on the Mosul River, which is where Vintrich, Germany is. And they were building barrels, and they were gauging um, wine and spirits. Gauging meaning measuring uh, or, you know, determining the quantity of spirits, I I suppose, for taxes. About seven generations back, they moved to Vintrich, Germany. And um, if you go to uh, Vintrich today, in the heart of the Mosul wine region, um, the prominent winery is Weingut Quint. So we've started communicating with the the Quints there, uh, and um, they're more in the wine business these days. They send us wine, and we send them whiskey. When my great-grandfather moved here in 1881 from there, he obviously brought the skills with him because I remember my father still being a very good metal worker and a good uh, woodworker. And um, I have my father's old still on display at our distillery and uh, the old apple press that he uh, would use to press apples and make apple wine and then uh, allegedly uh, make some uh, apple brandy. So what did they grow on your farm? What was your farm, well, your family's farm mm-hmm. all about? So both my family and my wife's family um, for generations have been farmers in uh, eastern Iowa. Uh, and the farms are about 45 minutes from our distillery, but we use the corn off the farm for um, uh, our bourbon, you know, which is our flagship product. And you didn't set out to be a distiller in the mm-hmm. first place. No, I'm uh, actually a certified public accountant. Uh, yeah, so accounting's <laughs> that helps my <laughs> in a small business or it a big does. business. As oh, well. you'd be surprised how important it is when you're making your own whiskey, and you know that's an important differentiator. A lot of craft brands really they're crafting the brand more so than actually crafting the whiskey. A lot of these people are just buying whiskey and, you know, trying to create a new brand. And some of them have been very successful at that. We are making our own whiskey. We mill the grain, we mash the grain, we ferment it, we distill it, we barrel age it, we bottle it. To to do that, you need um, a lot of business planning. And so I think it has been a useful skill set. I, I would say I, I have a skill set for accounting and finance and management, but I have a passion uh, for the industry. And I think, you know, that comes from my my family heritage. You and your wife, Lori, have a very long life story together, don't you? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, she was 13 the first time that uh, we got together. You remember her from, (laughs) was that eighth grade? (laughs) Yes, yes it was. And, And did you all date all the way through high school? Yeah. She got rid of me a couple times, but 
we uh, you just we kept coming got, back, evidently. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so now we've been married thirty-one years. Yeah. Oh, congratulations! That's so lovely, and I understand that Cedar Ridge was sort of part of your retirement plan. You, you must be working mm-hmm. pretty hard in retirement, yeah. though, huh? You know, it's a business that we started as a lifestyle business, and I've said that many times. It was designed to be a lifestyle business. When we started it, we both kept our day jobs. We were going to kind of do this the safe and methodical way, and we, we've stuck with that. She, at one point, stopped teaching and started working full-time at Cedar Ridge, and then later I started working full-time there when the business would support that. It was not designed to be what it's become because it's become a lot more than we, we thought it would. It's but hardly it was, a retirement <laughs> business at the size that y'all are doing now, huh? Right. But, you know, my heart lies in the uh, the production and the daily visitors that we get. Uh, we get about 80,000 visitors a year really? at Cedar Ridge. Yeah. Um, we get a lot of visitors from all over the country, but they're usually with somebody local. How many acres have you all been living in? Well, yeah, the family farm is about 800 acres. Um, You know, we we only use a small fraction of that for the bourbon. You can get a lot of bourbon off an acre of corn. Well, you all have really been breaking a lot of ground legally because you were actually the first licensed distiller in Iowa since Prohibition. Yep, back in 2005, yeah. They didn't really know (laughs) how to do the licensing because... Uh, we were the first, and so it did. It was quite a lengthy process. But you know, since we got licensed in '05, um, there's a dozen more now, and I think there'll probably be be more in Iowa. Yeah. How long did it take for that to happen? Um, I would say between 12 and 18 months to get through both the federal and state paperwork process. Yeah. That's actually pretty quick compared to some <laughs> tales I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, particularly for the first. How did you learn to become a distiller? So. There's a number of things that you do, and when you combine them all, I think, you, you know, you get there. And one is you take all all the education you can get, um, all the training you can get. Uh, two, your still manufacturer wants you to be successful, and they clearly know what they're doing. Our stills are all Christian Carl stills from Germany. I guess with the Quint name being German and our, our history being from Germany, um, that seemed like a natural fit. And so we went over uh, to Germany and trained for um, a couple weeks. We're in communication with them all the time. And then, you know, these days it's really networking. And, um, you know, we have so many friends in the industry now that, you know, they lean on us, we lean on them. I think part of it then also is you... You make uh, every mistake at least once, and pretty soon, <laughs> you know you know uh, how to do things over you know over the course of time. Jeff, you recently received a real honor from the American Distilling Institute. You were named the National Distiller of the Year. What was it like to receive that honor? Was it a surprise? Uh, well, it was probably the biggest single positive event we've experienced over the last 12 or 13 years in business. And um, it was it was a surprise. We got a call from Bill Owens that runs ADI. He didn't tell us what was up, but he said, hey, Jeff, are you coming to the conference this year? I said, yeah, we're, we're bringing five this year. And he said, well, are you going to the awards banquet on Tuesday night? And I said, Bill, we usually don't do that. We usually go out with a supplier or a vendor or something. 
he said, well, this year you might want to come to the awards banquet. So we had uh, an idea, but no one had ever, you know, said it out loud what was going to happen. But all night long, uh, the awards went on, and at the end of the night, they named uh, Distillery of the Year, and they, they called us up to the stage. So it was a big honor. It's certainly helped us. Jeff, thank you so much sure. for taking the time out of your busy time <laughs> here in New Orleans to visit with us at Louisiana Eats. Thank well, you. Nice to see all your energy and uh, enthusiasm. Jeff Quint, owner and master distiller of Cedar Ridge Distillery. considered to be the father of frozen food. Stay tuned, and we'll solve that mystery when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. Who is considered to be the father of frozen food? Clarence Birdseye, who began America's frozen food revolution in 1924. Before his food career began, Mr. Birdseye worked as a fur trader in Labrador, Newfoundland. There, he observed the native Inuits freezing their just-caught fish as it was pulled from the icy waters onto the shore's frozen bed. To his delight, he discovered that months later when the fish thawed out, it was virtually as delicious as when freshly caught. He deduced the secret was super-quick freezing. Previously, food that had been frozen slowly was damaged when large ice crystals formed, rupturing the cell membranes so when defrosted, the water would leak out, taking with it the flavor and texture. 
Birdseye discovered that the secret to quick freezing involved the innovation of packaging the food before freezing it. The packaged food was held under pressure between two hollow metal plates chilled to 25 degrees below zero by the evaporation of ammonia. But even the packaging needed inventing. He's actually the guy who got the DuPont company to invent cellophane for cellophane wrappers. Then there were all sorts of other issues, like transportation, getting trucking companies and trains to have freezer cars, and getting stores to install freezers. Absolutely no infrastructure for frozen food existed before Clarence Birdseye. He accomplished all of that, but it took more than a decade. His concept of quick freezing actually ended up creating 168 different patents. The frozen food revolution totally changed the market for green peas. Previously, green peas were a precious commodity, only available during a brief time in the spring. But once they could be frozen, vine-fresh green peas became available year-round, creating a great demand for peas from green pea growers. That had a tremendous impact on farmers like Ben Branson's father and grandfather, who ramped up production to meet the demand. Almost a century later, Ben is ramping up production on the family farm once again, but now it's to satisfy the demand for his non-alcoholic spirit, Seedlip. But it's thanks to Clarence Birdseye that today we all eat frozen peas that taste almost vine fresh anytime we want. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. I can't wait, I can't deal since you walked out on me. My name is Archie, and I'm the co-founder of Black Cow Pure Milk Vodka. On most farms, cows have their place, and there they pretty much stay. But one afternoon in the English countryside, the purpose of one herd of cows changed forever. Paul Archie and his farmer friend Jason Barber were inspired to experiment with cow's milk to make a totally unexpected beverage, a whey-based vodka. How did this happen? Archie took us back to that fateful afternoon. Like a lot of good things, it happened over a good drink. And I was in my dear friend Jason Barber's kitchen in his farm, and it was late afternoon, and we were talking about the state of farming, and we were also sipping on some homemade eau de vie. Where we live in West Dorset, in the southwest of Britain, it's very rural, we just have cows and apples, basically. We, we make a lot of cider, all of us. And it's good. It, it, it's good, and then it gets strong, and it starts getting gnarly. And really, the only thing to do with it is to pop it in a little still and make something slightly stronger out of it. And we were trying this, and... Into the kitchen walked Joseph. Now, Joseph is Jason's dairyman, so he helps far, He helps milk. And he also happens to be Polish. And we said to him, we said, try a bit of our hooch. Just try this. And he, and try he, our hooch. He, he, wrinkled, <laughs> he wrinkled his nose up. He tried it, wrinkled his nose. He said, it's okay. 
And then he looked out of the kitchen window and he said, you know, you can make good drink out of cow's milk. And we looked out of the kitchen window and looking over in the adjacent field were Jason's 250 dairy herd eyeballing us. <laughs> and it is like a light bulb went off above Jason's head, a big smile. And he started thinking about what he could do with his milk. Jason always has preferred drinking vodka to any other drink, simply because it's the only thing he's found he can drink and still wake up in the morning and get to milk the cows without feeling terrible. Um, and we set about going on an adventure, which took us about two years, of discovery. And we very rapidly realised that actually people have been making alcoholic drink out of milk for millennia, for thousands and thousands of years, mostly in cold, arid climates. So in Mongolia, they make it out of cow's milk. In Siberia, they make it out of mare's milk. And in Tibet, they make it out of yak's milk. And they're all different beers and arakas and things like that. So we set out to make a vodka, a super premium vodka, entirely out of cow's milk. And what we ended up with was what we call pure milk vodka. Tell me a little bit about the process. How do you turn milk into vodka? Right. Well, what happened was Jason's milk goes to the family cheese plant. And at that point, the milk is split into curds and whey. The curds are full of fat and make... It's what we use to make this cheddar cheese with. And what's left over is whey. The fantastic thing is we actually make our product out of something that effectively almost gets thrown away. And also it means all the milk gets used, so there's a sustainability to it, but it's very attractive. Waste not, want not, as our grandparents would say. Um, so basically what happens is the whey, we, we get a permeate out of the whey, which is full of lactose. Lactose is a sugar molecule, just like fructose, which all the other booze in the world's made out of. But the yeast that ferments fructose into alcohol doesn't work in a lactic environment because the pH is too low, it's too acidic. But happily, nature gives us another yeast that does work. And that yeast, we, 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 make, a, we make a beer out of the way, and it ferments quite rapidly. There's an exothermic reaction, it gets hot, quite rapidly up to 2.5%. And at that point, the alcohol's killed by the yeast. So we have this very weak, milky beer, much like someone making a mash out of barley or any f where all distillates start from. And then we put it into a still, and just like any other vodka, spirit, it comes out at a 96%. And with that, we take that spirit and we recombine it with the milk, and we have our secret compounding, compounding process, and we filter it and we do some other good things to it and you end up with a crystal clear super premium vodka which has the same utility as other vodkas you can make superb martinis with it great vodka lime and sodas all the drinks where you can really taste the vodka but it just has this gorgeous creamy finish that is from the milk one of the hottest topics in health and what we're consuming and what it does to us seems to be the whole deal with lactose. What does a whole milk vodka have as an effect on someone who's lactose intolerant? The real irony of it is that although it's made entirely from milk, there's only five parts per million sugar in it. So 
it's completely suitable for people with lactose intolerance. And in fact, it has lower lactose levels than various premium vodka brands because there's some premium vodka brands who add glycerine and also a little bit of lactose just to sweeten up the vo- their vodka a bit so they get less of that roughness on the throat. And the irony is we actually take... We're made entirely from milk and we've got less in it than some people have in theirs and they don't even make it from milk. So ha- where did the name come from? A, a number of things. I thought, well, for a start, what it's made of milk, so the word cow should be in it. And black... Is, is a great colour that is synonymous with luxury. It's kind of like a luxury, the black edition of things. And I thought, then I looked about and I thought, combination of an animal and a, and a colour, you know, it's not a bad thing. There are quite a few things about grey goose, red bull, white horse, and it goes on and on and on. And internationally, everyone can get it, whether you're in China or not. It's a very simple thing. And it just means good milk to me. Plus, we, we got to, you know, then we managed to have some fun with this little cow character we've designed. And, and the branding really went from there. Plus, it's a great Steely Dan song. What can I say? <laughs> That's wonderful. What's the reaction been? Well, they go, people go, I can't believe that you can make vodka milk. Now, in fact, we're not the only people who make whey-based vodka. We are the only people who make a pure milk vodka. But um, the reaction to people is it's quite fun because some people really like milk. So they go, gosh, I really want to try that. And then other people have funny feeling about dairy and milk. And they're the people I love when I'm doing sampling and say Selfridges or stuff. And I go around my little tray and go, would you like to try vodka? No, I don't like vodka. And it's made out of milk. I don't like milk. And I go, well, try this. And then they go, no. And I go, please try it. I made it myself. And I think you really like it. And then they try it. And there's a percentage of them go, Oh wow! I really do like this. It tastes, it tastes creamy. I don't like vodka, but I like this, and that gives me more satisfaction than anything in the whole process because we're so proud of our products. And it's lovely when you can when you can flip someone from thinking they don't like vodka and especially don't like milk to going, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a bottle of this. Now I understand. So obviously you've rubbed elbows with all sorts of people in all sorts of different worlds, and I understand that you have some sort of famous fans in the world of who enjoys your vodka. Yeah, we do have the odd famous fan. I mean, Kate Blanchett was the funniest one of all because she did this interview for Cinderella and for her film. And I don't know what happened, but she was having this this funny chat with this interviewer. He basically said, you know, if I get you a six-pack, you know, perhaps you're the kind of girl I can have a proper chat with. And she went, no, if you go to England... And you go and get this vodka called Cow, which is made from potatoes in Devon. So it wasn't really a very accurate description of the vodka, but she'd had it. And I know where, where she had had it. Then I'll talk to you. And also the sex will be really good, which was an extraordinary thing. And the whole thing went global, went sort of viral. But it was very funny. Um, anyway, and there have been various other odd things. We've been written into scripts like we were written into that um, television show Scandal. Um, and there's a scene where the advisor's in a bar and he comes along and he goes, what are you drinking? And he goes, are you drinking vodka? And he went, yeah, it's from England. It's made of milk. It's kind of creamy. And, and then he said, I'll have another of those. I'll have one of those. And he said, yeah, I'll have one too. And then they start talking and at the end he went, you're right, it is creamy. <laughs> and we couldn't believe this. We thought, where's this coming from? And then cool. we found it's out... like an ad. No, then we found ad. out who the screen 
who the screenwriter was, and we realised he'd been at the Chilton Firehouse in London, and he'd obviously talked to the bar guy, and he'd just written it into the script to make the script a bit more, I don't know. That's wonderful. So all these things have happened really purely by accident and synchronicity. Paul Archie of Black Cow Pure Milk Vodka. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you'd like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredients with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 